There's certain conversations that those of us who do not live on farms get into with people who do live on farms where you know, as somebody from the city or the suburbs, that the farm person that you're talking to is just thinking, you are so naive. Often these conversations have to do with animals and their deaths. Take this example. The woman who started our program's website, Elizabeth Meister, was at the annual exhibition run by the American Poultry Association in Columbus, Ohio. And here she is, standing in a room with 12,000 chickens. And she gets into a conversation with an 11-year-old girl. I've only been in poultry and waterfowl for a year. I'm more into waterfowl. This is Kamiko Overs from Bliss, New York, who was at the convention to show some of the chickens. So, so do your friends think it's weird? Do they think it's strange that you have, you know, that you show chickens and stuff? No, because they, a lot of people show, they'll either be showing pigs or cows or rabbits or something like that. A lot of people in our school show different things. Miko and Elizabeth talked for a while. And then Elizabeth tried, very, very gently, to ask a question that was on her mind. Do you, uh, this is sort of a, a hard question for me to ask, but do you, do you ever eat them? Yeah, I do. You do? Yeah. And, and does it make you really sad when, I mean, if, do you raise these chickens from like little, little chicks? Yeah, we hatch them out and then, yep, we get them right from the hen and we eat them a lot. <laughs> we do raise a lot for eating. And so, so when you're eating this, when, when, you're, when you're cooking up this chicken, you know, that you've raised from being a little chick, do you feel a little bit guilty that you're eating this chicken? No. No? No. Do you, do you ever eat the chickens that you show? If they're not good for show, the losers, yeah. <laughs> Kamiko's untroubled by this. If a bird has bad feathers or a lopsided comb, it might be a nice bird, but if it's not going to win competitions, you eat it. That's life. Those of us who don't live on farms, we tend to divide animals off into those we love and those we eat. In Kamiko's world, there isn't such a hard line separating the two. You can get to know a bird on an up-close, one-to-one basis and still eat it. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. And today... During this period between Thanksgiving and Christmas, the highest poultry consumption time of the year in these United States, we bring you a program about poultry, our poultry slam, stories of chickens, turkeys, ducks, birds of all kinds, and our relationships with them. Poultry slams have been a not-quite-annual tradition on our show around this time of year. And putting together this year's program, a very few particular ideas and questions kept coming up in story after story without us ever intending for it to happen that way. A lot of this year's show has turned into a kind of referendum about where you draw the line between friend and food. Act one of today's show, Still Life with Chicken, food writer Jonathan Gold tells what it's like to pan fry a chicken with a live chicken watching you the entire time. Act two, last meal. When the president of France, Francois Mitterrand, knew he was about to die, he decided that the very last food to cross his lips would be poultry, a tiny bird that is actually illegal to eat in France a bird that by tradition is eaten with a napkin covering your head. Act three, Chicken Diva. Jack Hitt tells the story of a chicken opera complete with, yes, avian supernumeraries. Act four, The Meaning of a Bird. David Rakoff explains how his life was changed in a single evening in a room full of 5,000 chickens. Stay with us. One, still life with chicken. 
It was an accident that Jonathan ended up living with a chicken. He wasn't living the kind of life one usually associates with chickens. This was during the period when I considered myself to be a performance artist of sort, a, a naked performance artist to be specific. These days, Jonathan Gold is a food writer in Los Angeles. This all happened 15 years ago. He was putting together a performance. He had a PA system which could put out the requisite amount of annoying feedback sound at high decibels. He had the two full bottles of Glade American Beauty Air Freshener, which he would spray in their entirety in the performance space. And he had a live chicken, which he bought the day before the performance in one of those Chinese poultry markets in Los Angeles. And comes the day of the show, an audience gathers in a darkened warehouse in West L.A. I don't know if you've been to a lot of performance art, but this was sort of really typical of the stuff that was going on at the period. And I showed up, and I was naked, and I was carrying a machete, and I was blindfolded. And I stood in the middle of this pile of supermarket chickens, you know, the, like the broilers that you buy. And the chicken that I had bought was tethered to a three-foot rope around me. And I hacked up and down blindly with a machete. Toward the chicken or just in general? Well, I was blindfolded, so I didn't know if it was towards the chicken or not. And I had fully intended that, in fact, I would kill the chicken in the midst of this performance. But chickens aren't that stupid. And this chicken wanted no part of the machete, stayed at the end of its rope the entire time, apparently. And after 10 minutes, when I was completely exhausted, I fell to a heap, and everybody left, and the performance was over. I don't know if you've stuck around after an art performance, but the few minutes after an art performance are the some of the most depressing in the world. How so? Uh, you've, you've done your wad, you've done your sort of bit for art, which has either worked or it hasn't, but you're sitting there, you're covered with chicken effluvia in my case. It stinks to high hell. Everybody's gone and you've got to clean up. And you're naked. (laughs) It's really not a pretty picture. So Jonathan cleaned up and when he was done, he had a chicken. And he didn't feel like he could kill the chicken. Destiny had brought them together. He felt like he could not turn his back. He says it was the same as if a kitten shows up on your back door, scratching and lonely and needy. So he took the chicken home. And in doing that, he stumbled across that thin, thin line that separates food items on the one hand from pets on the other, that divides the animals we eat from the animals we love. So I get home, and I I have this chicken, and I don't know what to do with it. So I spread out some newspaper on the top of my refrigerator, and I put the chicken up there. I get a can of uh, Green Giant brand niblets from under the counter, and I, I open it, and I put it in a little bowl for the chicken, and I give the chicken a little water, and the chicken's on top of my refrigerator. Because you think chickens eat corn. You had read that or something, and those that was the available corn. That was the available corn. I, I wish I had thought better of the niblets idea. Why? Because, in fact, if you're buying three or four cans of niblets a day, which is what the chicken ate, and you're existing on almost nothing, which I was, then 
your niblet bill turns out to be like some, you know, two-figure percentage of your total <laughs> income each week. <laughs> I mean, if you can imagine living on $50 a week, but $10 of it goes for niblets. <laughs> it, it's just hard to justify an expense like that. So at the remove of 15 years, I think I can probably safely admit to you now that one of the reasons that I stuck with niblets is because I like saying the word niblet so much. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this gave me the, the excuse to use the words like niblet in general conversation several times a day. <laughs> Usually it just doesn't come up. And the chicken stayed there on top of my refrigerator for a long time, months, six months, I think. Is this like a one-room apartment? A two-room apartment. I had, I had a kitchen and a bedroom, so I didn't have to look at the chicken when I was sleeping. Though I did have to look at it when I was cooking. Did you ever cook chicken? Of course I cooked chicken. Didn't you feel intensely uh, disloyal? No, I felt no particular loyalty to this chicken. I don't know if you've ever had chickens, but it's not like... You, I mean, you don't pet chickens. Chickens don't really like you to pet them, and you don't hold them. There's really no love that you feel for a chicken in your life, I don't think. But yet you kept the chicken. I kept the chicken because I couldn't bear to do anything else. I mean, it's not like I could have carried it out onto Pico Boulevard and said, be free, little chicken, be free. <laughs> Did you give the chicken a name? I never named the chicken. I, when I referred to the chicken in public, I always called it the hen. How did you not name it? It was, it, was a, it was a creature in your house. The chicken always seemed temporary. It never occurred to me that I might have the chicken as long as six months. It, the chicken always seemed like something that I would have for just a couple days. And then what did you think was going to happen? I guess I thought, A, I thought about the chicken expiring. B, I have to admit that there was a possibility that someday I would actually cook the chicken. I went through a lot of chicken recipes, hundreds and hundreds of chicken recipes. But Thinking maybe this will be the recipe for my niblet-fed chicken? Exactly. Possibly, I have to say, the most delicious chicken that you could ever eat because of those niblets. You can't buy niblet-fed chicken for love or money, I don't think. I'm not sure that a recipe existed that would have lived up to the fact of the chicken. This animal who you have come to know on fairly intimate terms mm -hmm. and who you have raised and who have put a certain amount of emotion into. A chicken, if I might say, who has seen you naked. The chicken did see me naked, damn it. The fact is, we need food to be just food. And as soon as it becomes a living thing, especially if we're city people, you know, we're not used to the conversion of living things into our food, it, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to handle without thinking it has to be bigger than food, you know, without wanting to make it ritualized or something bigger than food. Exactly. Can I tell you a short, uh, small story? Yeah, of course. Um, a few weeks ago, I was in this Korean restaurant in Koreatown in Los Angeles, 
it was this place called the Living Fish Center that I'd always wanted to go because the name of it was so splendid, you know, Living Fish Center. I imagine, you know, some sort of like vast vivarium where like Flipper was jumping through hoops and stuff. And I go in there and of course it's just like a crummy Korean restaurant. I mean, it's it's not that clean and I don't know their tanks and stuff, but I don't know what to order. So I order a fish soup because it looks like they have a small fish soup specialty on the menu. And it comes and it's just really strong smelling and not that great. And I try squid fried with bean sauce and onions, which was, it wasn't that happening. And I'm about to give up and pay the check and go home with a vast table filled with uneaten stuff. And it suddenly occurs to me what the specialty of the restaurant is. And, you know, I wave the waitress over and I tell her that I'd like a prawn. And she is puzzled. She didn't expect me to ask for a prawn. But I repeat my request and she shrugs and goes and tells the sushi chef. And... He goes to one side of the restaurant and he climbs on this chair, this ordinary folding chair, and he reaches into this long tank that's running just below the ceiling. And he wiggles his fingers in the water. When he wiggles the fingers, the prawns just become enraged. And they start you know, nipping at his fingers and they start attacking him. And he picks out a couple of the liveliest ones and brings them back to his counter and without washing his hands, mind you, just makes a few motions over it and a couple seconds later the waitress comes over with the prawns on this huge mound of ice. Now what he'd done is he'd taken off the exoskeleton. He'd essentially, like, the head was intact and that little part of the tail that is always on prawns is mm -hmm. still there. But the middle part is naked. Like a grub. And I picked up the prawn with my chopsticks, and it was not dead, this prawn. It was extremely alive. And it was wiggling its legs, and it was wiggling its antennas, and its eyes were, like, swiveling madly on its eye stalks. And it was looking back at me, seeing me as actually the predator, the, the creature that was going to eat it. And that was a really freakish moment, because as much, as, as much stuff as I eat and as... Low, low as I eat on the food chain and as many prawns as I have dispatched in my life, I have never before killed a living being with my teeth. And he, the prawn knew what I was going to do and he did not like it. And I wasn't quite sure what to do, but I, if I put it down, the prawn would have died anyway. I mean, it's not going to live without its shell and somebody else would have eaten it, blah, blah, blah. So... I bit into it. I bit its body off with my teeth. And the prawn just relaxed in this way that was really eerie. And the taste of the prawn, the taste of the meat of it was extraordinary. I mean, it was sweet. It was like there was life coursing through it. It was the most alive thing I've ever eaten, you know, obviously, literally. But again... It was freaky. It was getting too close to the actual nature of consumption, which is killing a living creature with your teeth. When you when you bit into the prawn, did you actually bite off its head, its living head, and, and have its head and its eyes in your mouth? 
No, I bit off its body, and I held the and I held the head in my hands. So, you, so, you, so you held the head in kind of one hand and the tail in the other, and you bit the center, right? And I thought that I I thought that I'd killed it, but in fact, when I put it down, it was still had so much life in it that it grabbed a piece of salmon sashimi and wouldn't let go of it. And I don't think I ever want to do that again. Did you feel like there was something um, about the experience that made it more... This word is a little cornier than I intend, but it's the only word that I can think of, that made it more sacred, that took it out of the mundaneness of the way that we eat, which for most of us is eating without actually tasting and experiencing and thinking about what we're eating and what on the earth it is that we're killing to survive. Do you think in some way that it's that it's more acceptable to eat an animal if you are more awake to the fact that it is an animal and what's happened to it? Or do you think it really doesn't matter? I, I think it matters a great deal. I mean, one of the you know greatest metaphors in Western civilization is that of, you know, Christ who gave his life so that others might live. And I don't want to be sacrilegious and I don't want to, you know, belittle that myth in any way. But a pig is giving its life so that we might eat. A chicken is giving its life so that we might eat. And I think the least that we can do is to think about that chicken, to think about that calf that we're eating. Not necessarily to be sad for it, but to celebrate it to be aware of the being that it was, that it wasn't just this bit of, you know, bioengineered protein that somehow managed to find its way onto our plates. Jonathan Gold writes his food column, Counterintelligence, for the LA Weekly. Act two, last meal. Consider, please, poultry consumers, the role of poultry in Francois Mitterrand's last meal. Mitterrand, you'll recall, was the president of France, died at the beginning of 1996. A contradictory and enigmatic man, the French press used to call him the Sphinx. He once actually staged his own assassination to help himself in the polls. Obsessed with history and his place in it. Michael Paternetti wrote about Mitterrand's last meal for the magazine Esquire. Mitterrand found out that he was dying of cancer. Our story begins just weeks before his death. Right before Christmas, Mitterrand went to Egypt uh, to commune with the pharaohs. Even though he was extremely ill, he decided that he had to go there one last time. You said he went to Egypt to commune with the pharaohs? Yeah. Like literally with the pharaohs? Well, he, he felt this spiritual connection to to these leaders of the past. And... He studied the lives and, and, in particular, how many of these people died, what what their last gestures were. And he felt that his last gesture would have to be equally fitting. Equally grand. Yeah. And while he was there, he decided that he was going to have this amazing last meal. What he did was call back to France and made sure that 
they had this menu that he decided uh, would be it, which was this amazing feast of oyster and foie gras and capon and uh, finally this little songbird called Ortolan, which symbolizes the French soul. And it was this completely forbidden thing to eat Ortolan. It's uh, illegal in France to do so. And uh, Because it's an, it's an endangered species, right? Yeah. And people who have served Ortolan, chefs who've served it in France have been fined. And I think in one case, um, a chef was imprisoned for serving it. Did you look at all into why the Ortolan would come to represent the soul of France? It, it was the food of kings in France. And once it was caught in these tiny traps, um, they would, in, in very old times, they would actually uh, poke the eyes of the bird out. So the bird would live in complete darkness and just eat 24 hours a day. And then when it was fattened, they would drown it in um, a kind of cognac, and uh, there was this ritual associated with the preparation of the bird as well as with eating the bird. Actually, in, in like Proust and Fielding, uh, Ortolan appear, and they symbolize seduction and adultery and virginity. And, and one of the things about Ortolan is that People eat it with a napkin over their head? Right. People put an, a large cloth napkin over their head. And apparently what the napkin does is it keeps the aroma inside this tent, sort of, in which you're eating. Um, and the French say that it also keeps God from seeing you eating the little birdie. Meaning what? Meaning that it's sinful. That, that the bird is so innocent. And the pleasure so great? And the pleasure so great that it's a sin. And Mitterrand, when he had his last meal, I mean, he, he knew he was dying. Right. And um, he continued to survive for qu- quite a while after the last meal, right? He lived eight days, and he didn't eat or drink during those days. He had just decided he wanted the last food that he had eaten to be the Ortolan. Yeah, it's pretty, I mean, it's incre- that was what was most incredible to me, is that he's, he had this huge dinner uh, and then consciously decided that that would be his last meal and then just readied himself for death. So you arranged to go to France to try to taste this bird and have this meal, in fact, to try to recreate Mitterrand's last meal. Right. And it it started with 100 phone calls just to try to locate somebody who would even entertain the notion. And after literally months, uh, there was one chef in Bordeaux who said that he would he would cook the meal. And so you have this massive meal... Ending with the bird. Yes. And what, what do we know about when Mitterrand ate the bird? Well, we know that during the meal, he slipped in and out of consciousness in between the courses. And he would eat ravenously. And then he would just sort of pass out. And he sat at a table separate from the table where all his guests 
all his guests were seated. There were about 30 people there, extended family and um, friends. And Mitterrand would rise up with each new course and eat. But he really wasn't talking to many people. Um, and he was really focused on trying to finish the meal and, and taste, apparently, every note in that meal. When you had, uh, when you had your meal... Do you feel like you were able to achieve that level of awareness where you're tasting every note of the meal? It seems like such a high standard to aspire to. I felt like it was the most incredible meal I've eaten. And it was because I was very focused on everything that went into my mouth. And also because when it came to the ortolan, there's no easy way to eat ortolan. You are forced to taste every bite and it's it goes from being completely sublime to be to being uh, excruciating describe what it's like to to eat the bird we should say that the bird you describe it as the size of your thumb smaller than your thumbs yeah yeah it's it, it is it's about the size of your thumb and it sits in a they serve it in a white cassoulet and you put the napkin over your head and you duck down um, toward the cassoulet, and so you are sort of in this space that is completely white, the white napkin, the white plate, the white cassoulet, and then you have the bird on its back that you lift up and put into your mouth. Uh, you cool it by breathing in and out. And this is the entire bird, every part of it. Yes. Uh, in our case, the chef insisted that we bite off the head and leave the head on the plate. I think in Mitterrand's case, he, he ate the head, too. Okay. So you bite off the head, you leave the head on the plate. And then you begin, uh, you cool it, and then you begin to chew. And that is, uh, that first bite is incredibly difficult to describe because it's terrifying. I, I mean, I was... I was terrified. I was, I was nauseous with the idea of it. But the first um, bite of the bird changed that. It was incredibly and almost immediately delicious. It, and all these juices f- um, were flowing out of it into your mouth and sort of mingling and commingling with everything that was already in your mouth. And it's like this very finely evolved consomme. And then you begin to taste the meat and they're little tender bits of, of meat. Uh, and then I, I think you begin to taste the, the organs and it becomes more bitter. So the, the sweetness and the tenderness turns bitter. And then? And then, well, you'd keep... You keep chewing ortolan until you have chewed it completely, and then you're supposed to swallow it all at once. And it's there's no other way really to consume it. And as you as you continue to chew, uh, it gets harder and harder because you're working the bones finally. Uh, so the meat and the juices fade, and you suddenly are chewing these bones. Uh, and that is that is when um, 
you really, I think, fall into a bit of an existential crisis. Like, what the hell am I doing? I th- and then also, I, I really think I'm going to throw up. And how am I going to swallow these bones? And how am I going to swallow them? I mean, you really... you. Many people who have never had Ortolan before end up spitting it out on the plate. And in fact, at Mitterrand's last meal, a number of the people in the room did spit out their Ortolan. That seems like incredibly bad form, though. You're spitting out the soul of France. Yeah, you're incredibly gauche if you pull that stunt. Writer Mike Paternitti, he says after focusing so intensely on eating that one meal... Or like Mitterrand, he tried to taste every flavor. It felt weird to get back to normal eating. It felt a little dirty not to pay attention. Because it takes a lot of energy and concentration when, when you really taste a meal. It takes concentration and silence. The way you describe it, it's almost like you're saying that if we were really awake to what the world is giving us in a given meal, it would be hard to eat the meal every single time. Yeah, I think I think we would I feel like we would age really quickly. But you're saying that we have to deaden ourselves in order to live. I think I think we do. I don't think we I don't think we make enough time to eat. And if we haven't made enough time to eat, then it's better not to taste what we are eating. It's easier. Coming up, tiny styrofoam balls singing in Italian. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This American Life, Myra Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today, during this time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, the time of year when poultry consumption in this country is at its greatest, we bring you our poultry slam, stories of chickens, turkeys, ducks, fowl of all kind, and our relationship with them. We have come to Act 3 of our program, Act 3, Chicken Diva. Chickens are what we make of them so much of the time. And if you need any proof of that, we have this story from Jack Hitt. Oddly enough, it wasn't Susan who was obsessed with chickens. It was Kenny, a pal who worked backstage at the 92nd Street Y in New York. His house was filled with chicken cups, chicken masks, porcelain chickens. He got the whole staff onto chickens, including Susan. For a time there in the 80s, poultry-related jokes and references became the fast way to get a laugh at the Y. I guess most of us are condemned to see nothing more than the easy comedy of chickens. But Susan Fatucci saw something else their potential greatness, their hidden beauty, their grandeur. 
One day she glued together some finger puppets for a ten-minute rendition of the Chicken Little story for her nephew. That was 14 years ago. Today it is a full-length opera, enjoyed by a cult following whenever it goes up in a workshop or cafe or small theater. It's still performed with finger puppets, but now it has a complete score written by a noted composer, Henry Krieger, who did Dreamgirls. The Chicken Little opera he wrote with Susan Vitucci is called Love's Foul. Needless to say, that's F-O-W-L. Well, we were going to start uh, with the uh, opening, Siamo del Teatro Repertorio delle Malette. We are the Clothespin Repertory Theater. And we have a special singing guest for you, which uh, I don't know... If we're Susan talking. and I are sitting at Henry's baby grand piano. Henry's guest is his Maltese terrier named Toby. Perhaps Toby would be kind enough to... You want to, yeah, would you sit on your lap for this? The piano, oh, yeah. yeah. Let's yeah. see what we can do. Okay. Okay, listen carefully. Because once Toby gets going, he actually harmonizes with Henry and Susan. Siamo del teatro repertorio delle molette. Celebriamo memoria della nostra Giorgia Mica. You may have noticed that this libretto is an Italian, just like a real opera. Before it was just a bunch of puppets in a box, you know, with a good idea. And then suddenly, as soon as it went into Italian, it became something bigger than what it had been. And it's because when it's in English... We all kind of know it, and it's really not that interesting. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as it's in Italian, it gives us enough distance that we can come in. You know, it makes us... It's like the the lover who doesn't want you. You don't want anybody more than you want the one who doesn't want you. <laughs> right? And so it's sort of the same thing. Dove sono nata, dunque trattami con gentilezza. You may recall that when you last heard of Little, back in kindergarten, she was just an average barn door fowl who had an acorn drop on her head, which she mistakenly understood to be the sky falling. Her alarms excited her friends, Goosey Lucy, Turkey Lurkey, and Ducky Lucky. And they join her for a journey to the king to tell him the important news. On the way, they meet up with Sly Fox. Little's pals eagerly accept his invitation for dinner, literally as it turns out. Fortunately for Little, hunger is not enough to distract her from her mission, and she treks on. When she meets the king, he tells her that the sky is not falling, it's just an acorn. So the enlightened chicken Little returns to her coop, and that's where the story ends. Like Goldilocks and so many children's fables, the actual meaning of the story is obscure. What are we to take away from Little's experience? I like to think it's that Little is rewarded with life, precisely because she went off on this quixotic mission, totally in the grip of a wrong idea. By clinging to that belief, however crazy, she managed to free herself from the ugly Darwinian world of the barnyard, and of its mandate, eat or be eaten. Si certo, signore Valperasso, ci raggiungi, signore Valperasso, andiamo, amici, andiamo al re, andiamo, andiamo. The children's fable barely figures into the story. 
It's just one small episode in the life of Chicken Little, now known as La Pulcina Piccola. After the acorn incident, she goes on to become an internationally renowned figure in almost every field imaginable, a diva of politics, academe, theater, art, daring do. Like Venus, she arrives from some other world, transported on a scallop shell. But the triumphs of her life begin after a youthful love affair with a fighting cock ends bitterly, and she consoles herself, as we all do at some point in our lives, by plunging into Shakespeare. She becomes an overnight sensation as an actress, celebrated all over the world for one role. Juliet? Cleopatra? Ophelia? The company then performs a, an excerpt, a recreation of the, her signature role, which was Richard III. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, Sarah Bernhardt did Hamlet. Well, there's a great tradition of women playing the men's roles in Shakespeare, but I think Richard III is one of the r- more rare roles to be played by a woman. Well, that's how adventuresome <laughs> an actress this chicken was. I can assure you there's nothing like watching a four-inch tall finger puppet crying out, A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. In Italian. Not to mention that that puppet is a chicken, surrounded by a whole supporting cast of poultry and other avian supernumeraries. Susan says that, artistically, there's something special about chickens. They're a clean slate, in a way. They're, you can put anything on them. You can project anything onto them, because it's not like they have, to me at least, a very strong personality. Except for La Pulcina. In the opera, she moves into the field of archaeology, masters it, needless to say, and makes a great discovery, the last tomb of Galapatra. But not before she sails the seven seas, is shipwrecked, gets rescued, but it's by pirates, and then she meets the pirate king. As as soon as he meets her, he falls in love with her because of her sweet spirit. Because she comes in and she says, here you see a little chicken um, who, although I'm dripping wet... I'm proud and yellow. Let me repeat that lyric for you in a pure translation. Although I stand before you, a chicken, who is dripping wet, I am proud and I am yellow. Okay, back to Susan. And although I've uh, loved and I have lost, I have learned to follow the call of adventure. So let's sail on. Arriva stamattina, benvenuto, benvenuto, sulla questa copertina, benvenuto, benvenuto, benché bagnata, fradicia, ziele, ziele, sana giallo e sapevo, ziele, ziele. Keep in mind that all of the action, like everything that occurs in every Susan Fatucci production, ever since the first one for her nephew, and continuing to this day, occurs among characters created by sticking a small painted styrofoam ball onto a larger painted styrofoam ball, poking in two map tacks for eyes, gluing on a tiny felt beak, and then impaling the whole thing on top of one of those really old-fashioned clothespins that a 40s cartoon figure would clamp to his nose around a chunk of Limburger cheese. And I could go on. She takes a cowboy lover on the American frontier while on a lecture tour. 
Then there's an affair with an Italian professor, modeled on a real 15th century naturalist who wrote a treatise on chickens. There's always another adventure, even outside the opera. Susan has written, or she puts it, translated, La Pulcina Piccola's diaries, which detail the other adventures that happen in between those in the opera. There are 60 pages so far, excerpts of which have appeared in Clotheslines, the official fan club newsletter of the opera. Its masthead lists every category of donor. Zealot, fanatic, worshiper, admirer. Uh, a zealot has to give $250, a fanatic $100. Do you have any zealots? Oh, yeah. In fact, actually, you can just give however much you want and call yourself whatever you want. So that we have people called i belli, what is it? Uh, belli amici piumanti, which means fine feathered friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a couple of those, and we have lovers. We have a couple of lovers. I'm not joking when I tell you that the high end donation is $500. People take this campy finger puppet opera quite seriously. When I was talking to Henry Krieger, he recalled the night he first saw a bare bones production of it at the West Bank Cafe in New York. And it was Krieger who approached Vitucci, begging to write music for it. Love's Foul has a strange effect on people. I didn't understand it until Susan loaned me a videotape of one performance. To be honest, I thought I would be annoyed at the intentional irony and hokiness of the puppets. But there I was with my three-year-old daughter, who loved the show, watching a plastic bird pantomime one of the simplest human moments, but also one of the most profound. The confession of a great love. In this case, with a cock robin. The song that she sings as she enters goes... I am a chicken and ready for love. My heart is as fragile as the egg from which I was born. Treat me gently and so will I treat you. Together from earthly love we will reach for the divine. And then she sings, I am a chicken and I can't fly without love. My heart my heart is as strong as the, the egg from which I was born. And so forth. And so it is only with Cock Robin that she flies. Amore Cos'è questo, amore? Cos'è un pilota elegante, vivace e libero? Questo è l'amore altissimo, è l'amore del paradiso. And after they have agreed to fly together, and they are soaring in the air, Cock Robin is shot and killed, murdered by a jealous sparrow. I couldn't believe it, but I was getting choked up, especially when Cock Robin appeared on the stage, his styrofoam body spray-painted black for the lament, his little magic marker eyes drawn as X's. I gathered my daughter in my arms and held on tight as I was helplessly drawn into an expression of the grief and suffering of this little sad bird. In this era of slick special effects, there was something unexpectedly liberating in the marriage of this crude medium, painted styrofoam balls bobbing up and down behind a cardboard box, and the high melodramatic art of Italian opera. Picture it. Adesso con un bacino arrivederci amore mio Adesso il suo spirito vive solo nel mio cuore Dove vado? Come continuo cuore mio? Coraggio pulcinina I want a subscription to that newsletter.
Are you going to do this? Uh, I mean, are you going to be working with Pulcina Piccola, you think, for the rest of your life? It's possible, and I like working with her because I get to go into a world that's that's inhabited by a very sweet spirit. And because it's very small, like I could never have afforded to produce this show with people. Uh, but I could afford to do it with clothespins. So I can do as big a production as I want with clothespins. I can have stuff fly in and out and come in from traps, and I can have all kinds of fancy, flashy stuff that costs millions of dollars to, to do on Broadway. And, you know, it cost me $200 because I had to buy lots and lots and lots of styrofoam and clothespins and stuff and all this in a new table, maybe. And I get to do whatever I want. Jack Hitt lives in New Haven. The online home of the opera is pulcina.org. Fact four, the meaning of a chicken. We close our show today with this story from David Rakoff, which begins far from any chicken house. Friday nights of my childhood and early adolescence were spent at weekly meetings of a socialist Zionist youth movement. My brother, sister, and I were members. The meetings took a variety of forms. There were the earnest discussions of Marx and the great labor Zionist thinkers like Theodore Herzl and A.D. Gordon, bull sessions about who in the group had hurt whose feelings, and playing air guitar to Come Sail Away by Sticks. All activities that formed us into pretty deeply committed young socialists ready at the age of 15 for the ultimate prize the movement could bestow, a summer living and working on a kibbutz, one of the collective farms that were a central part of settling the Jewish state. There we would meet other members of the movement from all over the world and spend many a happy hour engaged in honest labor, laughingly bailing sheaves of wheat, picking olives, oranges, peaches, grapes, the sweat on our brows a shining reminder of the nobility of collective farming. In the evenings, we would gather together and dance around the fire, sing Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young songs, and, if one's older siblings were any indication, lose our virginity. Years later, we would renounce our bourgeois upbringings and return to Israel, making lives of simple agrarian bliss. This would all change for me in one single evening in a shed of 5,000 chickens. The kibbutz I was assigned to was one of the oldest in Israel, settled in 1928 by Jews from Russia, Poland, and Germany. For the most part, our arrival was met with little to no notice. We were just another group of volunteers, no different from the countless other Europeans and Australians just passing through, taking time out to pick fruit, work on their tans, and contract cystitis from their rampant and unchecked coitus. But we were different. We were members of the movement. I thought that our political ardor would be immediately apparent. I had visions of our bus being greeted by garlanded folk-dancing youth so happy to have us there to share in their dream. I had been raised on a fairly steady diet of just such socialist utopian Ziegfeld numbers. Songs, film strips, and oral histories that all attested to just this scenario. Trees weren't simply trees. They were jungle gyms of plenty with smiling children clambering over their branches. A field was somewhere you brought your guitar so that your comrades could dance down the rows after the day's work was over.
I was assigned to pick pears. Work would begin at 4 a.m. and finish sometime mid-morning before the heat had set in. How filled with fervor I was that first morning, the light barely dawning as I headed out in the back of the truck, wearing my simple work shirt, a pair of shorts, and the traditional sun hat worn by so many pioneers who had come before me to make the desert bloom. I should pause here to point out that we actually said things like, make the desert bloom all the time. So, off I headed to the orchard. I know I sound like the central casting New Yorker I've turned myself into with single-minded determination when I say this, but the main problem with working in the fields is that the sun is just always shining. Dot in the wool northerner that I am, it became apparent after about two days that I was completely unsuited to working outside and I was moved around among the kibbutz's various interior jobs, the furniture factory, the metal irrigation parts factory, and the kitchen, assured all the while by the group leader that there was nothing emasculating or ersatz socialist in being moved inside. After all, each according to his needs, each according to his abilities. My abilities seemed to lie in passing out from heat stroke after a scant two hours in an orchard. This continued for weeks. It was a somewhat idyllic, if not a mite monotonous existence. That is, until the long night of the chickens. The boys of our group were gathered together one day and told in the hushed tones reserved for trying to avert impending disaster that we would forego our regular work details and spend the night from midnight until dawn packing truckloads of poultry. Why this needed to be done with such urgent secrecy under cover of night and why the girls were excused was never explained to us. And we didn't ask. We greeted the news with the respectful Hemingway silence of the Y chromosome. No dopey girls allowed. It was all imbued with nocturnal, testicular melodrama, like some summer stock production of Das Boot. We slept that evening from nine to eleven, what I would come to know later, in a far different context as a disco nap. We rose, drank some tea. The girls sprayed perfume into some handkerchiefs for us to wear around our noses and mouths, and we were off in trucks to do battle with the insurgent chickens. The scene had everything but the diner waitress standing in the road watching us go, worriedly wiping her hands on her gingham apron. The chicken coop of the kibbutz was a one-storied structure of corrugated iron, about half the size of a football field. It emitted a low rumbling, a vague buzz that you could hear from far away. And, of course, from even farther away, there was the smell. A smell of such head-kicking intensity as to make a perfume-sprayed handkerchief almost adorable in its valiant naivete. Wily Coyote warding off a falling boulder with his paper parasol... Chicken is horrible stuff. Unlike cow manure, which, according to David Foster Wallace, smells warm and herbal and blameless, chicken is an olfactory insult, a snarling, saw-toothed, ammoniac, cheesy smell, needlessly, gratuitously disgusting, a stench of such assaultive tenacity that it burns your eyes. 
Rather than making you never want to eat a chicken again, it simply makes you angry. It makes you hold a grudge. You'll eat chicken again, by God, and you'll chew really, really hard. One of the barrel-chested Israelis shows us what to do. Pick up four chickens in each hand. This is done by grabbing hold of the birds by one leg. If the leg snaps, he says, it doesn't matter just to get four in each hand, besider, he says. Okay. He faces us holding the requisite eight, four in each hand, living masses of writhing feathers. He looks like some German expressionist cheerleader, his pom-poms alive, convulsing, filthy. Who will see their dreams fall away into the abyss and eventually succumb to the crushing sadness and meaninglessness of it all? We will. And what does that spell? Madness! Louder! I can't hear you! He crams the chickens roughly into a blue plastic crate smeared with wet guano. And you close the lid and chick-chuck, he tells us, clapping his hands with that's that finality. Before I even try, I know that I will not be able to do this. It is midnight, and we will be here until dawn or until the truck is piled to capacity with crated birds. I walk out into the sea of chickens. I reach down and grab one, its leg a slightly thicker segmented chopstick. I recoil and stand up. I take a fetid breath, regroup and bend down with new resolve, grab the chicken by its body with both hands, thinking somehow that might be preferable, although how I think I'm going to get eight of them this way, I'm not sure. Its ribs expand and contract under my fingers, a dirty, warm, live umbrella. I drop the bird as if it were boiling hot. My friends are all grabbing handfuls of poultry and shoving them into crates, unmindful of splayed wings, attempted peckings of their forearms, and the horrible pre-morbid squawking of birds on their way to slaughter. My sensibilities are not offended by the processing of animals for foods. I don't care about chickens. I fairly define anthropocentric. I'm crazy about the food chain and love being at the top of it. But, like the making of sausages, federal legislation, and the heartwarming film work of Robin Williams... There are some things I just don't want to witness. I leave the coop and go out to the trucks. Hoisting myself up onto the flatbed, I start to help with the stacking of the full crates. I know that my unilateral decision to change my task is met with displeasure on the part of the men who run the coop, but I do not care. Maito? What's the matter with him? The head of the work detail asks when he sees me on the truck. He has answered using the female pronoun when referring to me. The lady doesn't like the chickens. It would be years before I was referred to as she again, and then, very rarely and only as a joke by friends, I turn around to look at the men, making it quite clear to them that I understand what they're saying. The man who called me she avoids my eyes and busies himself with straightening a pile of crates and tightening the tarpaulin on the side of the truck. You're right, I tell him in Hebrew. She doesn't like the chickens. (laughs) ¶¶ 
that very moment, I saw that I would never live on a kibbutz. I would not lose my virginity that summer to any of the girls from the group. Indeed, I would not care to do so. I am grateful to that macho blowhard. He made me consciously realize what I had always known, but been somehow unable to say to myself. He's right. I don't like chickens. I like men. Now I live in Manhattan, the Unkibbutz, where the words Karl and Marx generally bring up associations of Lagerfeld and Groucho. At camp when I was young, I and the other children of affluent professionals would gather under the trees every day to sing before going into lunch. One of the songs was always the Internationale, the hymn of the proletariat. One summer we were even taught to sing it with our left fists raised. We were none of us, by any stretch of the imagination, what could be described as prisoners of starvation, wretched of the earth, or enthralled slaves. Admittedly, they are all catchier metaphors and easier to scan than arise ye children of psychiatrists, but they had little to nothing to do with us personally. And yet, for those few moments when we were singing, those words seemed so true. How can I describe to you that eleven-year-old's sense of purpose? that thrill of belonging to something larger, something outside of my own body, the sheer heart-stopping beauty of a world of justice and perfection rising on new foundations, and that one line, we have been naught, we shall be all. Naught. It spoke as much about my wish to be delivered from this pre-adolescent self-loathing as it did to any consciousness of liberating the masses, but it held such promise of what I might hope for that even now as I write this, I can still call up that old fervor. It still makes my breath catch in my throat. David Rakoff's a writer in New York. Well, Brigham was produced today by Elise Spiegel and myself with Nancy Updike and Julie Snyder. Special thanks today to Mark Smith creator of Chicago's semi-legendary Poetry Slam. Our Poetry Slam is named in tribute to it and to him. The title in no way is intended to demean or denigrate poultry. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. This American Life is brought to you by Volkswagen. When you get into a Volkswagen, it gets into you. WBEZ Management Oversight for our show by Mr. Tori Malatia, who describes listening to our program this way. You really, I think, fall into a bit of an existential crisis. Like, what the hell am I doing? I really think I'm going to throw up. I'm Eric Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. PRI Public Radio International.